If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. The Speech Uncensored podcast is your one-stop location for all things medical, speech, and language pathology related. I'm Leanne Porter, your host. I'm delighted that you're joining me today. I have a special episode for you. I'm really excited about this one. I love our topic. I love our guest. I'm just all kinds of happy. Sarah Newman is joining me today to talk about salary negotiation for SLPs. And what a juicy topic. Am I right? Like we all want the the goods. We all want to know the inside scoop. So I'm delighted that Sarah was able to join me and share the research that she's done on this topic and the tools and tips that she brings to the table. And then of course, you get all the stories from me. Whether you wanted them or not, I'm sharing my stories with you. Um, I like to think of them as an illustration of what not to do and sometimes what to do. So (laughs) I hope you enjoy them. I had a blast recording this with Sarah. I'm indebted to all the work that she did um, uh, preparing for this episode and this topic. And I'm just really excited to get to it. So let's do that now. All right. Welcome to the podcast. I am here with Sarah Newman today. Sarah, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much, Leanne. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, good. I'm glad. I was waiting. I was like, are you happy to be here or not? (laughs) I I thought it was a given. I'm sorry, but then I realized I had to say it. I'm teasing. All right. Well, Sarah, I'm actually super stoked for our conversation today. This is something that affects every working SLP. Like if you have a job, this is a topic that's super relevant to you, no matter what setting you work in, um, no matter what type of work you do. Advocating for ourselves professionally is really important. And it's a skill that we have to practice and we have to learn. I think some people are naturally really good at it. But I think for the majority of us, it's a hurdle that we have to kind of get over to acquire, to learn, to do. So we're talking about salary negotiations and advocating for our worth and what we bring to the table at our jobs. Yes. Yes. I'm so excited to talk about this today. And I'd also like to kind of give a shout out to um, like where I, where I sourced you from, like how I found out about you, like the Instagram world has been wonderful for hooking me up with SLPs who are out there doing really great things, sharing information, um, looking to support other SLPs out in the field. And this is actually, um, a talk that you first developed for a leadership group. Is that right? That's right. So, um, Brooke Bielman has an, an SLP servant leadership group, and it's a group that's comprised of students and practicing clinicians. Um, It's a 12-week program that she offers for free. I believe she's starting the second round now. And um, I was asked to come and talk about the cost of becoming and being an SLP kind of in preparation for this scholarship program that I was starting. And I was so surprised at the just profound reaction that people had to some of this information, um, how eager people were to hear it and, and how this isn't a topic that's really often addressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing a little bit about it in grad school, like, you know, ooh, you should negotiate. You should always counter offer, you know, really do your research, know your worth. And then, you know, at the time I was just so overwhelmed with everything else on my plate. I was like, really another thing I have to like learn and figure out and, and do awkwardly, which I did do exceptionally awkwardly. I like, I'm sure I'll tell that story later in our conversation today too. <laughs> Cause I want to know if it worked. It did and it didn't because I've negotiated twice for two different jobs. And so, yeah, I'll tell those stories. And I think I have briefly told that story before on the podcast. I can't remember now. I talk so much. It's all blurring together. (laughs) It's okay. You can tell it again. (laughs) 
it'll be great. It'll be great. Okay. Now you just mentioned um, a scholarship program that you're starting. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that before we get into our topic today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one thing that the Instagram community has brought me is that I have loved connecting with other people, um, students and clinicians alike. And one thing that has been um, really resonating with me is the cost of becoming and being an SLP. Now I'm somebody who uh, you know, grew up in poverty. So this topic is really pertinent to me and it's why I'm so passionate about it. And I think we have a huge financial access problem in the field. So I had actually really wanted to start a scholarship for a long time. And I contacted uh, my alma mater to try to start one. But at a university, you need lo- thousands of dollars to put in a trust. And I said, I don't, I don't have that. Um, but what I can do is I can start a GoFundMe which you can find on my Instagram or my website, todayilearnedinmedslp.com. And it's a crowdfunded SLP scholarship. So our goal is to provide $500 cash scholarships to SLP undergrad and graduate students to help them access the field, whether that's scrubs for their placement, grad school applications, um, CEU courses, networking opportunities, you name it. And I'm so excited that we have already reached our initial goal of $1,000. So we just doubled it and we'll see where it goes. That's awesome. Wonderful. Congratulations on starting that. I get really excited about SLPs who have a passion and a vision and then they execute it. And it's all about supporting our colleagues. So that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Is doing the big, scary thing. That's, that's so true. That's right. It's like, Oh, what if I fail? But what if you never try? Right. Like, cause you didn't do it. Cause you didn't do it. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Sarah. Um, one more delay before we get into our topic. I want to learn more about you. Um, where do you practice? What do you practice? Um, what are your other passions in our field? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a full-time SLP in acute care, and I work in a large university hospital, about 700 plus beds in Dallas, Texas. And I am our lead SLP for our multidisciplinary tracheostomy and laryngectomy team. And that has really gotten me into um, working on quality initiatives and risk management. So it actually inspired me. I'm now pursuing my master's of health uh, administration from Texas Tech. And um but I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just passionate about it all. And I love working with adults. I love working in acute care, which I've been doing for my entire career, but I'm also really passionate about, um, mentorship and just helping other students and clinicians just really, you know, have great careers. That's awesome. That's so needed. That's wonderful. Okay. Super. All right, Sarah, let's get into it. Why is, um, negotiating your salary important and why do we encourage new grads in our CF population to negotiate? Why shouldn't they just accept what's being offered to them and be grateful to be offered a job? Oh, oh, this is a a great, (laughs) a great question. Um, And I think there's so much to unpack there. And I think before we do that, we have to also acknowledge though that, you know, this is a discussion about spending and earning money. And I think to start that out, we have to acknowledge that I think comfort levels surrounding discussions of money vary and are so influenced by um, who we are and where we come from, including positions of privilege and power. So whenever we come to this table, um, we don't have the same frame of reference. So let me share a study with you and kind of explain what I mean. We're talking about the article by Gray et al. 2019 from JAMA Surgery, and it's about career goals, salary expectations, and negotiation among male and female general surgery residents. And what they did was they surveyed 407 surgery residents. Uh, And what they found was that even though male and female residents had identical career ambitions, Female residents had a lower expectation for their minimum starting salary. It was almost $19,000 less compared to male residents. Wow. I Wow. And then the ideal starting salary was $30,000 less for women. Which Come is Come on ladies. I Step know. Up. So Step up. wild and it's like when we 
ask this question about why is it important to negotiate, you know, I think we have to ask ourselves, where does this come from? Because the female residents also, they were less likely to believe they had the tools to negotiate or less likely to pursue other offers as a negotiation tactic. So we really have to dive deep into um, why don't we want to negotiate? Why do conversations about money and, you know, career ambitions maybe make us uncomfortable to the point where we are avoiding it. Okay. Because in reality, this has a very serious impact. So, you know, these are residents' expectations, right? But what actually happens in the real world? How does that manifest? Okay. So there's an article from JAMA Internal Med published in 2016, and they did a study of 10,241 academic physicians at 24 public medical schools. So this is a serious sample size. That's large. Yes. Huge. (laughs) And they found, okay, this, oof, they found that there was a mean absolute salary difference of almost $20,000 between female and male physicians, even after accounting for like age, experience, specialty, faculty rank, clinical revenue. So these, whatever is holding us back from negotiating is absolutely manifesting itself in reality. Um, So that's why we're here today, because there's this concept called wage transparency, that if we talk about it, And if we learn the skills, then it's less likely to happen. Um, Because not only is that hesitancy to negotiate have an impact on the industry, but it has one on you too. Um, So there's this fantastic study about this topic um, that we're going to talk about more later. But essentially it's this, that people who choose to negotiate increase their starting salaries by an average of $5,000. A year. Yes. I mean, Leanne, what would you buy with an extra $5,000? Oh, girl, I'm a saver. So I would already (laughs) be planning on like which of my little savings accounts I would put that in. Like, would it be my travel account, my like vacation home account? (laughs) I'm like, I save and then I spend. (laughs) You're so much better than I am. I'm like, I'm going to Target. (laughs) That's it. I know, but here's the thing. Okay, so $5,000 a year, I want you to think about like what that would look like across your lifetime. So $5,000 this year, I mean, how much, a, a, you know, a cost of living or, a, um, you know, a raise do you get every year? Maybe a, a percentage point or two. And then, you know, like my employer, I have a, a mandatory uh, 401k contribution, and then they match that. So there's more money than just like, what are you getting paid per hour? So if you made an extra $5,000 per year, let's say you're 25 years old and you start at $50,000, right? If you worked for that company, let's say until you were 65, you would earn a total of um, $634,000 less over your career than if you had just asked for that $5,000 at the beginning. It's mm. a huge compounding effect, right? Yes, it does. And we don't realize that. No, I know. And so it's, you know, you've talked about uh, negotiating your salary. Is this, you know, are these things that resonate with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, so I'll tell you the story about my first interview for my first job. And I'm on the phone with HR and they offer me a number and I'd been told always request like tack on $5 because usually they give you an hourly rate um, as a starting point, even if you're going to be salary, I think, I mean, I've, I've only like interviewed three times, so <laughs> I don't have a large sample to pull from here. These are just my experiences. So, um, so instead of saying counter offering her number with my number, what I said was, is the salary negotiable? That was an error. I would advise against doing that because she said, no, then then am I going to continue that discussion and say, well, it should be. Um, And in fact, 
It really is. It really is. They act like, Ooh, I really, I don't have wiggle room here, but I'll tell you my second story and they do have wiggle room, but okay. So staying with this first story where I asked, is the salary negotiable? And she said, no, there was a, a bonus for taking the job. And I'd been warned about bonuses as well, because usually you have to sign a contract saying you will work for them for X amount of time. Um, Otherwise you have to pay the bonus back. And um, so it it was a $2,000 bonus that they kind of said was like for travel to help you move to relocate or something like that. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm moving from really far. And since you won't negotiate the salary, could you increase the, the moving bonus? And so then she was like, well, I don't know. I have to check if it increases, like I have to get clearance from my manager. So she was able to double it to $4,000. Nice. So that was good. But I had to sign a two year contract that stated I would work for that company for two years or I would pay back all $2,000. Now here's the other caveat that I don't think a lot of people know is that when you get a bonus, 40% is automatically taken out in taxes. So you don't see almost half of it. Wait, really? Absolutely. If it is a bonus, you will not see 40% of it. Those are taken out in taxes. But I signed a contract saying if I was going to leave, I would pay back (gasps) $4,000. I never saw $4,000. So they could have made money off of you. Mm -hmm. Well, no, no, the government would have made money off of you. The government would have. The company did pay $4,000. The government took their portion. So um, so that's that's the difference between a bonus and then like a moving stipend because my husband has relocated for work and they reimbursed him up to a certain amount of money for travel. And that, so if we spent $4,000 on travel and we were reimbursed that, that's different. Taxes are not taken out for reimbursements for moving costs in that way. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know I was getting a bonus and that like it would, I wouldn't see 40% of it. So like I kind of negotiated myself out of like a thousand dollars and some change. Um, Well, I know, but at face value, you're just looking at it like, great, $4,000. Right. This is awesome. This is helpful. But why couldn't they have given that $4,000 into my salary? Right. Because then they would have been committed to that year after year after year. Exactly. As opposed to just giving it to you one time. And then it doesn't have that compounding effect over the rest of your career. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that was my experience pseudo negotiating for my first job. (laughs) (laughs) You know what though? At least you tried. I did try and it was hard. I was so glad I was on the phone because my face was all scrunched up and I was like, is it negotiable? Why is it so uncomfortable? I do the same thing. My heart races. It does. It's just because we're here talking about this does not mean that I do not feel some of these same things that other people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just so ingrained. It, and it's what you said. The more we talk about it, the stronger we feel able to talk about it when it matters. So if we can have these conversations with our colleagues and with people we trust, we can have these conversations when the rubber meets the road, when it gets more difficult because we've had practice at it. Exactly. And I had, you know, put out some feelers on Instagram, uh, you know, kind of, you know, what are some of the barriers that, that people face? I know how it makes me feel and you know how it makes you feel. And people were saying things like, um, I don't know how, uh, which is very uh, understandable. Uh, I don't like conflict. Uh, I'm just happy to be making money. It's just nice to have a job. It's my first job ever. This seems like a great salary. Um, I'm afraid if I negotiate, they'll say no, You know, even if it's a very reasonable amount that you're asking for. Um, This was pertinent to me. My facility doesn't allow negotiations. We have um, an equity pay-based system in place. So based on your education and years of experience, your job classification, here's the number. And so that we don't have any forms of, you know, wage discrimination, everybody gets paid the same. And because it's a public hospital, I work for the state, you can actually go online and look up anybody's salary 
to know exactly how much they make. So it's great for equality, but then when you try to negotiate, the answer is no. So that's something I ran into. Um, or then people say, I just don't know how much to ask for. Like you said, you know, I heard $5 or I heard, uh, so there's just so, there's just so much there. Mm-hmm. And that, it's like, because we don't want to put a, a foot out of line. We don't want to ask for too much and look greedy. So then we don't ask for anything at all. And that's where like, it was important for me for like the title of this episode to contain the phrase, like know your worth. Mm -hmm. I think we're evaluating our contributions and we need to know what we're bringing into the hospital or to the setting that we work in and that we can be fairly compensated for our amazing and broad skill set. I absolutely agree because let's be honest too. It's, it's not just compensation for the job that you're doing when you clock in or clock out. It is expensive to become an SLP and to be an SLP, right? So the SLP healthcare survey report, the annual survey trends from ASHA 2019, they found that 32% of SLPs working in healthcare had unpaid student loan debt uh, in the median amount of $40,000. Ooh, ouch. Yeah. And you know, some, I know some people have more and some people have less, but think about what you invested into becoming an SLP and what you're expecting to get out of it. And then not only that, but we, you know, love to talk about practicing at the top of our license. I mean, that's not free either. You know, I mean, ASHA dues in and of themselves. But last year I went through my uh, ASHA CEU registry and I spent close to $1,000 on continuing education. So the career is an investment, but negotiation is a return on that investment. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Negotiation is your return on investment. Yes. Yes. Right. We, we spend so much uh, and we talk about, you know, what are, what are we worth and let's get paid what we're worth. Uh, absolutely. Let's do that. So what do you say we talk about some negotiation strategies? Ooh, yes. I'd love that. Yes. So when you say you negotiated your strategy, did, uh, your salary, did you have a strategy in mind? <laughs> My strategy was to ask for more money. <laughs> to ask for more money and hope that they say yes. Yes, it was not well defined. My second go around, I was like, okay, what am I bringing to the table? Well, I have my C's now, like I'm no longer a CF. Um, I'm certified in like vital STEM. So I did that training and that hospital um, used that modality. So that was useful. And I was like, um, oh, what were the, so I just thought about like, those different things that I bring to the table. So it was like the certification that I have my C's that I have experience in outpatient. Cause I was moving from an outpatient job to an outpatient job. Um, and then the other expectations of that job, you know, and it was, um, being able to float over to acute care or inpatient rehab. And I was like, yes, I can do that. That's what I did at my previous hospital as well. So I'm familiar with all those settings and I feel comfortable in them as comfortable as you can, like two years out. I was like, um, and I was trained and had done video swallow studies. So like that wasn't going to be something new for me. Um, so I was like, I felt like decently well-established. So, um, for my second interview for my second job, I brought those things up. So when they gave me a, a number, an hourly wage number, I said, I countered whatever that number was. I added four or $5 to it. But my second mistake, the second time around was I gave them a range. I was like, oh, I was thinking something along the lines of like, uh, 34 to $36 an hour where I wanted, let's say $36, but I undersold myself because I was scared again and I said like 34 was like my lowest range. That was like what I would just barely accept. Right. And so that was what they offered and they would not go a dollar or a penny above my lowest range. So that was my second lesson. First lesson, don't ask yes, no questions. 
Nope. Second lesson, don't give a range. Give your highest number. Have your secondary lowest number private to you, like what the lowest you would accept for that job and see where you land. So give them your highest number. And if they counter offer with a slightly lower number, but it's within your, your range, your privately held range, right? then that's better negotiation. I know that's why the idea of a salary range, like it makes sense for the facility because this is their budget. But for people who are coming to the negotiation table, you know, in reality, like it doesn't make sense that you would ever limit how much you would allow someone to pay you. Mm-hmm. Like my limit is $36. I will not let you pay me 37. And you don't know that they weren't going to offer you 38 until you said 34 to 36. Right. So I love that having this, you know, this is, this is my value, what I want to be paid. Um, and I'm not going to cap it, um, but I certainly have a privately held minimum. Mm-hmm. Cause that, you know, I like that when you went to negotiate the second time, you certainly had more confidence of your understanding of your worth. You know, my first attempt at negotiating, uh, oh, it was kind of a disaster. Uh, For my clinical fellowship, I was living in DC. I was going to school there. And I was so fortunate that I actually ended up uh, getting a fellowship at the VA Puget Sound in Seattle, Washington, which was uh, an amazing experience. And when they sent over the salary offer, it was... I mean, essentially it equated to about $20 an hour. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I had been waiting tables at the time and I was actually making more uh, waiting tables Mm -hmm. than I was for that value. And I came back and I I don't know how much of a strategy I had then other than to say, hey, I'm moving across the country for this. And also I, you know, here's the industry standard. But you know, they came back and said, it's it's the federal government. It's a budget line item that we have to have approved three years in advance. There's really nothing we can do. And that was so painful for me because I wanted that experience, but for that dollar value, I mean, yeah, I guess that privately held minimum, right? But it was so painful to see all of my... Uh, you know, fellow graduates working in SNFs making like $50 an hour. And, you know, here I was, but I did ask for money other places. Um, you know, they paid for my MBSIMP certification. They, uh, funded my, um, my cost to the, uh, Dysphagia Research Society conference. So even if you're not getting it in the dollar amount, you can get it in other places. That's right. And I think another important thing to mention that I failed to earlier when I was negotiating a second time is that I did a lot of research, that market research. What are SLPs getting paid for X amount of years of experience and in what region of the country and in what setting? Because you are paid very different amounts depending on what setting you're working in. Um, People working in hospitals are not paid the same amount as people working in skilled nursing. There are different expectations on your time that accounts for what those differences are. And so you can't expect to call up a friend who's working in a skilled nursing facility, say, hey, what are you getting paid an hour? And think that a hospital is going to match that. Like they're not. (laughs) It's different. It's very, they have very different things happening. So Yeah. And that's part of the question when people say, I don't know how much to ask for. I actually have some tools I can share to help people answer that question for themselves. Perfect. Okay. So you talked about, yeah, you have to know the industry standard. We have to educate ourselves. So the question is, what are we getting paid? I work in in healthcare, so I use the SLP Healthcare Survey Report, the annual survey trends that was published in 2019 from ASHA, but they also have one for schools, if that's where you work. And the average salary has gone up over time, but in 2019, for all healthcare positions in all locations across practitioners, the average was $78,000. Okay. So that's the absolute middle. Um, So you can use the ASHA survey reports. Those are available on their website. If you need more specific statistics, the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually keeps pretty good data on this as well, uh, sorting by facility and region. 
So if you just go on their website and you look at occupational employment and wages, they have the um, hourly mean wage and annual mean wage across different types of facilities and locations. And they actually, they agree with ASHA pretty much on the average that it's about $78,000. But if, like you said, uh, Leanne, if you work for a, like a skilled nursing facility, that average is more like 95. Uh, but if you work for home healthcare, it's more like 86. So really good to have that data. But the absolute coolest thing that I have found to help answer this question is a tool that was developed by the Department of Labor, and it's called ONET. O, and then it has an asterisk, N-E-T, ONET Online. And it has speech-language pathology as a career option. And what you do is you go online and you put in your state and your zip code so you can look exactly where you're living. And it gives you the um, hourly income and annual data. And you can look at... um, They keep a lot of statistics on this. So when I went and looked up my salary, because I was like, hey, what, where am I in all of this? I was um, pretty much right there on or above the average. So I felt pretty good about where I was. But I mean, the ASHA reports, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and the ONET online from the Department of Labor, all three really good tools uh, to go on um, and educate yourself. Um, And I'm also pretty sure that some of these SLP Facebook groups or Instagram groups have started some informal surveys to answer these questions too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, they have. Um, And, you know, when you think about the the median or the mean being $78,000, that can mean a lot of different things to people living in different areas of the country. Like that sounds like a fabulous salary for um, maybe something little rural or um, small town, because I lived in rural Virginia and that kind of money goes a long way. But if you're living in the Bay Area of San Francisco, uh, California, that's probably barely enough to get by. Like, Enjoy your studio apartment class. (laughs) Right. With a family of six in a studio apartment, right? Exactly. So yeah, it's, um, it means different things to different people based on where you are. And so I like, I always feel like that needs to be put out there. We, it's not something we can compare just blanket across the board. Yeah, not at all. Because especially it's so like dependent, like you said, on on your setting, your role, you know, if you're an administrator or a supervisor, your years of experience, location, and then also some of those special skills. Like I, you know, I do fees or I do MBS. Um, and then also factoring into, you know, wage discrimination, like we talked about in the wage gap. Um so all of those things, you know, when it comes down to it, I think it's just wage transparency. It is, I think, okay to ask people in your area or people you know or people on Facebook or Instagram, how much money do you make? You know, what? because if, if we don't talk about it, I think you're far more likely to be making less and, and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Um, so you want to hear my third interview and negotiation yes. story? All right. So for the third one, it was for a PRN job. So I had to do all kinds of different research to see what's the going rate for a PRN position and a hospital setting. What does that look like for my area? So I reached out to some people who I knew were doing PRN in my region and was like, if you don't feel comfortable giving me your actual salary, because some people aren't, I was like, could you arrange? Like, could you tuck it in a range and let me know what's what people are getting? What should I be hopeful for? What should I try to negotiate for? So I thought I had a pretty good idea. And I interviewed at two different hospitals. And um, one hospital gave me a number. And then um, because a lot most PRN work is like over weekends, most places will give you like a weekend differential. So they'll add a couple bucks to like that base pay when you work weekends. So like one hospital gave me like two numbers, like weekdays, this is what you earn per hour weekends. This is what it is. And then, um, when I got, uh, the call from the second hospital, the number they gave me surprised me. Um, (laughs) I was so surprised because I thought it was a really good number. I didn't negotiate. (laughs) 
I was like, because the other thing I find is that they actually do, when they give you the number, they ask, is that good? Or is that okay? Like they ask for your approval of that number. And that's your opportunity to no matter what the number is, add $5 to it, right? Right. I mean, negotiating is non-negotiable. Right. Tell me who didn't just say yes. I did. I did because I was like, I was, I was just so excited to be getting that offer to work at that hospital. I was like, and it was a a number that I didn't think I was going to get. Later, I found out that's their base number. Yes. I totally got in at their base number. And the other thing you need to know about PRN work is that you do not get raises working PRN. Like that's, that's you working for the hospital. Like when you have a full-time or a part-time job, like you're eligible for raises. PRNs are not. So whatever number you get hired in at as a PRN, that number stays your number. And that's the thing. There are so many ways to be an SLP. Think about PRN or think about how complicated the, the financials of being a traveling SLP can be. It's It gets really messy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how did you find out though that that was the base pay? It was kind of funny. It was just an offhand conversation I was having with um, another colleague who worked full-time, works full-time for that hospital. Um, We were just talking about just career goals and, um, you know, plans for the future. And they just kind of offhand mentioned like what the base rate is for our current hospital and that we were both working at at the time. And I was like, oh, (laughs) oh no, your heart sinks. What have I done? A little bit, but I wasn't, I wasn't mad because the value of working for that hospital, I like, I don't, I don't feel like I was cheated, you know, but I did miss an opportunity to negotiate. Like, that's what I'm sad about, but I, I don't feel like, like I'm, it's funny. Like, I don't feel like I'm undervalued there. Like I feel appreciated there. And that, that is a very important part, I think, of how we feel our overall worth is. Like a large portion of it is what are we getting paid? But then another large portion of it, I feel, is like, how are you treated there? So exactly. Cause I think at some point we all weigh the the input versus the output, right? Especially during COVID. I that uh, you know, I think really changed our opinion, frankly, on what we're getting paid. And a lot of people feeling like it is not enough and you might even be cutting my wage, you know? So what I'm putting into this is a lot less than I feel like I'm getting out now. Um, and that, that balance, you know, especially like you said, though, I was okay to, to accept this amount because I was so happy to be working for this facility or they were, you know, renowned. And so, yeah, there's that, that kind of, you know, internal uh, adjustment that we make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really funny. And then I keep debating like, Oh, I need to ask for a raise. How do I ask for a raise? And then like something like COVID happens and you're like, this would probably be the worst time. This is to the <laughs> ask for a raise. Um, but you know what? You always lose if you don't ask. And we we're fearful that if we do ask, we'll leave a bad impression or we won't be liked anymore. And that's a bridge we all individually need to cross and move on to the other side. Like if we want to be respected and and financially valued in the position, we have to ask. We have to put it out there. Absolutely. Because otherwise we're, you know, we're shortchanging ourselves to please other people. Mm -hmm. And that's just. It's just wrong. It is. It's it just wrong. makes me sad. We need to stop. And like, I need to stop. Like I've, I've had so many different types of negotiating experiences with different levels of success or absence, complete absence thereof, you know, like right. my third time, you would have thought I could get it right. <laughs> You're like, okay, I've got this. <laughs> I know right. what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, the things we learn. So, okay. Um, you were just about to get into like strategies and techniques for negotiation. And I think I hijacked that discussion. So let me just step back. (laughs) No, it's all good. I, yes, let's talk about some strategies because I, I have initially approached negotiation, you know, like we talked about like a fear-based process. My palms are sweating and my heart is racing and it just makes me feel so uncomfortable. 
And now that I've actually gone and learned uh, some strategies of how to do that, I feel like wherever life takes me and I have another opportunity to negotiate, I feel like these are some really good tools. So uh, I'm going to talk about some strategies that come from this fantastic study uh, by Marx and Harold from 2011. And it's essentially an evidence-based review of negotiation strategies that have existed in business for a long time. And they actually did a research study that applies some of these strategies to negotiation and look at some of the outcomes. So they've identified five strategies, and I'm going to go into each of these just a little bit um, to talk about them more. Uh, But an overview, it's competition, collaboration, compromising, accommodating, and then aversion. So number one is, is competition. And you can think of this as like a dominating technique. You know, your concern is on your personal outcome and not the outcomes of others. So we talked about wanting to be, to be liked or having fear of that. Uh, you know, tactics might include uh, being really persuasive or being really assertive. And it might sound like, uh, you know, I tried to persuade the organization to better my offer by threatening to withdraw. I was going to walk away. Or I presented information about the market value of the position for which I was hired, which is what we just talked about. So you can go in there with um, as much or as little, uh, I'll use the word bravado, right, as you would like. So you can take a more competing approach, or I think something that we've talked about uh, is more of a collaboration approach. It's more problem solving. So you're concerned about your personal outcomes, but you're also thinking about the facility as well. You're not going in there with this firm offer on the table and you're ready to walk away at any moment. And that's just more of a collaborative process with the facility. We're exchanging in information, you know, what works for you or what works for me. And that might sound like, you know, I tried to work with the organization to gain an understanding of where they were coming from. Like you said, with COVID, uh, we might have to collaborate a little bit more because facilities are under financial stress. Um, but then as you kind of go down the line, some of these strategies might get a little less assertive. So things like maybe you're somebody who likes to compromise. So that's kind of self-explanatory. And it's when you have concern for both yourself and the outcomes of the facility, but you're not really convicted to your own personal interests, right? You might uh, give a little bit more than you're ready to take. Um, And, you know, that's like really trying to find a middle ground, okay? And then even down the road, you have more accommodating. You know, this is what happened to me at the VA. You're yielding. You're not concerned about your personal outcomes. You're accepting of the outcomes of others, and maybe that's because you're coming from a position of limited power. You're a new graduate. You don't have any experience. You feel like maybe you don't have a, any leverage to put into this. And, you know, but what's the adverse outcome of that? You might say, I initiated negotiations, but then I gave in when they said no. Or, uh, you know, I, I attempted to negotiate, but I found myself going along with what the organization offered, which is what happened to you in that PRN position, right? And then the final strategy, which is the anti-strategy, is just aversion, which is to do nothing. And uh, like we said, negotiating is non-negotiable. So uh, if you pick any strategy, please don't don't pick this one. <laughs> uh, not allowed. I'm going to take that card off the table to not negotiate. <laughs> don't do that. Um, okay, so let's look at, we have all of these strategies uh, ranging com- from kind of like more aggressive approaches to less. Uh, and these approaches are all like really well described in this article. So I would encourage you to read more about it. But so here's what the authors did. They took 150 newly hired employees in various industry settings. So coming from an academic university, um, an MBA program, people working in healthcare, and these people had been hired in the past three years. And they did some surveys just looking at, you know, attitudes about risk aversion, attitudes about negotiation, and they also looked at their outcomes. So what was their salary offer compared to their starting salary based on what they did? And how did they feel about that? 
So if I had you guess, right, from competition, collaboration, compromising, accommodating, you know, from more or, you know, to kind of least aggressive strategies, which one do you think resulted in the highest salary gain? I think, okay. I have so many thoughts. It's like my initial thought is that the most aggressive form resulted in the highest gain, but I could see where that could backfire and it could make the person you're negotiating with be very resistant. Um, but if you take a more compromising approach and you're willing to sacrifice, then you're not going to be able to really come out with your anticipated salary um, because you're going to sacrifice. So I almost feel like it's some kind of middle ground between being firm, but kind, like, I don't know. That's exactly right. So they found that the people who had the competition style were, uh, there was the only strategy that resulted in a statistically, oh, statistically significant increase. So of an average of um, $5,000. So the amount that they made was really correlated to how aggressive they were during the negotiation process. So competition made the most kind of collaborating, compromising and accommodating right down the line. And, but like you said, though, you also have the potential for that negotiation strategy to backfire. You know, if you're going to go into a negotiation um, more uh, aggressive or uh, domineering maybe is the, is the word to use and say, this is my offer. You're paying me $45 an hour. I will take no less. And I have a competing offer from St. Mark's hospital down the street. Give me what I'm asking for, or I will walk. Now, if you're in a strong position of power, right? If you have a lot, a lot behind you, that might work for you. But if you're a new CFY um, coming from that limited position of power, that might not be the best strategy to take, right? But remember that even just giving industry standard and collaborating can still make you money. So looking at all of the opportunities and the ways that you can go about coming to this table and this deal, I think might help people understand who they are and, and what they might get out of it. Because I don't know about you, but for me, you know, a competition approach, even if I were, I'm trying to think of like some of the people in this field that I admire that I would pay a million dollars a year if I were a hospital, I don't know that I have the type of personality to feel, you know, comfortable taking that approach. What do you think hmm. about that? Yeah, I think I think what sits best for me is being well armed when I when I come to the negotiation table, it's being well armed with what are the norms for people getting paid for this type of work, for this amount of experience, for the type of skills that like I'm bringing to the table for this setting. And if I have a good idea of that range, then I, I have a place to go from. And then when they start the negotiation with a number, then I, then I know where they stand. And the other thing I know is that they're always going to start with the lowest number. They always. want to pay you for the smallest amount of money because that's their job. They're going to try to save their company money on you. It's your job to get what you're worth. So I, I've never been in HR. I've never confirmed this with anyone who offers jobs to anybody, but I just always feel that they offer you the smallest amount. And, you know, when we work in hospitals, they do have constraints. They do. Some of them, like you've mentioned are like public. And so they're tied to like what universities do. Like here you can, you know, go online and see what your professors make. For example, like it's all public record, like if you work for the state, um, the county or the government. So in some areas, there are limitations like that. But if it's a private hospital, even if it's a nonprofit hospital, there's always wiggle room and they're looking to save money in all areas. So I just I go in there always thinking they're going to offer me the lowest amount. 
And then it's my job to get what I'm, what I'm worth. And it's not my job to get what's the highest number I can get out of them. It's what is, what is my worth? What do I feel like is, is good compensation for what I bring to the table based on years of experience, the other extra skills, um, like my ability to grow and build programs, you know, and add value to the company. And, you know, negotiating that number is actually just a very small part of the whole package. Because if you're going for a job that has a benefits package, that's very, that adds a lot of value too. So like, for example, one of the places I worked, I thought had a very good benefits package. Um, Like so good, my husband could be on it. And it was a fantastic deal. Um, some companies will charge like an extra fee for your spouse to be on your insurance, for example. Um, and then like different kinds of savings programs that they have like 401ks or IRAs, um, employee assistance programs, just all these kinds of little extra things that goes into it as well. So the salary that you take home at the end of the day is what we're here to talk about. But when you think about the whole negotiation, think about everything that's on the table. That's exactly right. Um, because we talk about that, that dollar amount. And, you know, when you go into that room, like you said, it is not the facility's priority to look at you and say, you know, Sarah seems really nice. She's got a lot of great skills. We were going to offer her 36, but you know what? She just interviewed so well. Let's just give her 39. You know, that is, that is not in the interest of their bottom line to offer you more unless you ask for it and advocate for your worth. And uh, I like that you brought up all of these other things that are included in compensation as well, because compensation is more than just that number. You know, for example, like I mentioned, I work for a public facility. So we're on an equity pay-based system, but there are other things that go into my overall compensation package. Like for example, uh, my facility helps to pay for my tuition for my master's degree. I get money for CEU dollars. I have uh, you know, PTO time off and I have sick time. So even if you're in a situation where you can't negotiate for a, a dollar amount um, or the facility is not willing to negotiate on that point, there are other things that you can ask for. Okay, well, let's consider instead of, you know, accruing eight hours uh, of a PTO, you know, per pay period, I, I'd like, you know, to consider 10. Or I will need a budget of $1,000 for CEU per year. Or I you know, whatever it might be, um, to ask for more in other areas if that dollar amount is not flexible for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Because, I mean, if you are able to, if your facility is able to offer um, money for CEUs or um, advanced degrees and things of that nature, that is massive. That is big because otherwise who would be paying for that? You out of what salary that they're paying you. Right. So if you, yeah, if you can't raise that dollar amount, find out um, other ways, like what they, what programs they do have in place for continuing education money. Um, Some, some places offer it, some places don't. And so if you are judging a couple offers from different types of facilities, like maybe you're interviewing at a hospital, which has a lower hourly rate versus skilled nursing, which has a higher hourly rate, but the benefits packages are different and those little extras are different. Like at the end of the day, which one is going to be the best fit for you, for you as a clinician, for you as a human being, a parent, maybe like which one's going to offer you best uh, PTO schedules, um, you know, which one's going to work with you. It's, it's all about finding that fit and it's totally okay to go with the option that in the end will pay you less if you feel like the benefits to your career and to your home life outweigh something that might pay better, but might like slowly suck your soul. (laughs) 100% absolutely. You know, but the fact of the matter is, is that if we, you know, if we don't ask, we won't know. If you don't ask, the answer is no. And so that's why it's so important to remember that by the time you've gotten to the negotiation, you've already interviewed. 
they have already decided that they want to hire you. So keep that in your pocket. They want you and you want to work for them. And now we've just got to agree on this final piece. So go into that process with with confidence and armed with knowledge to you know, come to that negotiation with the information that you need to get paid what you're worth and what you've put into being able to be at that table. That's right. That's right. Um, I really love the way you phrase it. You, if you don't ask, the answer is no. And one of the constant refrains that inhibit us from asking is that fear of hearing no. And the irony is when we don't ask, we're guaranteeing a no answer. So your fear is giving you the exact answer that you don't want to hear. Right. So, and the only benefit is that you got to avoid having someone tell you no. Right. Right. Yep. But you lost so much in that process. So I, um, you know, even as talking about this, like I understand how, how uncomfortable it can be. But with all of these tools, I think it's it's really possible to go into that situation being able to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, take opportunities to practice that. Like I'm, I'm a very selective interviewer, but also applier. Like I don't apply for a lot of jobs. I, I don't just like throw my resume out there and, and see where it lands. Like I'm very, very selective so that therefore I've only had very few experiences going through like that, that interview process and the job offer and the negotiation. But I think it is completely worth it to experience that so that you can be in that place of power that you mentioned earlier about like, well, I'm considering an offer from another facility um, for X, Y, Z. Now, the other side of that is that sometimes these schedules don't align and hospitals move at very different rates. Like I thought I got ghosted by one hospital. Like I never heard from them. I, I was like, did they even get my application? Like it felt like months passed before they actually contacted me and were like, can you come in for an interview? And you're like, I had even forgotten I had applied. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Great. It, it was just so funny. And then and another experience I had, um, I went in for an interview and they were like, and you always ask when, when might I hear about whether or not this is going to go to the next level? Like if you want me or not. And they were like, Oh, like a week or two months, months passed. And then I was like, I got ghosted by that hospital. Like I actually went in for an interview, never heard back from them. So it's really wild. And, and that was okay. Like I do recommend like following up, calling that HR person that you like met with, like you don't have to just sit around and wait for a phone call. Like you can be proactive. But at that point I was like, I was cool for that. I just thought it was really weird. And I was like, they're not even going to tell me that they went with somebody else. They didn't want me. That job is still open and still unfilled. Like this is wild. (laughs) That is so rude. (laughs) It is. It's bad practice. So yeah. But but I think some yeah. Well, and that's the thing too, is it's there's just it can be so much uncertainty surrounding the process. But I feel like something that can help is if it helps you go ahead and role play in your car or with your classmates or with, you know, your friends and family about negotiating. So that way, when you're saying it to your future leadership or HR department, you're not saying these things for the first time. Mm-hmm. Well, my mm-hmm. expectation is X, or I have a competing offer from X. And it just feels a lot easier to say it when you've said it before. So I think practicing that can also be helpful. I do. Yes. I highly recommend practicing it. Absolutely. Um, and I also want to mention, you know, we talked about having that very, like we call it like the aggressive approach, the competitive approach, like here, here is what I will accept. It's that, or I'm walking, right? Like that's an option if you go that route, but I think you can also be very firm, but like kind about it. Like you, you have a purpose. You like, I've done the research. This is what, you know, experienced SLPs or new grads, you know, are getting in this field. These are my expectations. 
let's see how we can meet them. You know, I feel like you can be purposeful without being dramatic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's our, that's our fear with that approach is that we might be seen that way. And I think that's why it makes people uncomfortable, but there's certainly a way to, to do that and have your personal interests in mind and not, you know, be, um, abrasive. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the practice comes in because that's, I mean, I can tell now, like when I was trying to figure out how to say that for that description in this conversation with you, I was like, I don't know exactly the words that I want to use. Like I do, I need to practice this. I need to know how to say, here is what I feel like I am worth. Like, do you or don't you agree? <laughs> Please agree. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I really like it if you agreed. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. But, but having, having the language in your pocket ready to go is so, is so helpful and instrumental in that process for sure. It really is. Yeah. A script, having a script, having a script, write it out, practice it. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So that way you're not just adding $5. Right. (laughs) Even though that is a strategy too, as long as you're asking for more, that's the take home point. Right. Always ask for more. If they say no, you really, they are not going to withdraw the offer of employment because you asked for a higher salary. Okay, they are not going to withdraw your offer of employment because you asked for a higher salary. You will not lose that opportunity because you asked for more. Okay, what you will lose out on is the potential higher earnings if you don't ask. Mic drop. Exactly. That is perfectly in. <laughs> I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's our real fear. Like, <gasps> if they if I ask for too much and I come across as greedy then they won't hire me. They are hiring you. They have offered you the job. They've already decided that. We've moved past that. They already know they want to hire you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. I know. I need to go make more money. (laughs) Now that we've had this, hold on. Now that we've had this conversation. I mean, and that's an important distinction to make. Like, I don't want people to listen to this and to, to get riled up and feel like, they're being taken advantage of. And I don't know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know. What I want people to do is to feel confident and and purposeful and being able to approach that negotiating table saying, I have done the research. I know what I am worth. I know the value that I bring to this institution. This is the dollar amount of it. This is not too much to ask, you know, and I'm not just doing it to see how much you'll pay me. And then I can go loaf. Like, no, you are a hardworking individual who's highly skilled and, you know, talk about the services that you bring to the hospital, talk about the programs that you've opened, talk about the cross collaboration that you have with the nursing staff and the doctors and all of this stuff. So like, know your worth, like actually know it, not just, well, this is what other SLPs make. What are you worth? Like you have to do the research and you have to have that backing you up when you come to that negotiation table. So some of that, you know, like if you're applying for a new job in a different place, you can talk about what you did before at your other location. If this is your first job out of grad school, um, yeah, it's a little, little bit more challenging because technically like you're, you're unproven in that field. You can talk about your externships that apply to that. Um, and that is where, um, sourcing those resources that, um, you have provided for us that are in the show notes about going to the ASHA webpage and the two other webpages, knowing about like, what are people making in the different facilities? So yeah, it's kind of, it's a little bit different approach based on where you are in your career, but at the end of the day, always negotiate. Always. You gotta, you gotta battle for yourself. It's the first step in advocacy that you will continue to do for yourself and your patients throughout the rest of your career. Yeah. And that not only benefits you, but it benefits the industry at large. So, you know, as a collective, uh, we can really make some significant change if we start implementing negotiation more. That's right. That's right. All right, Sarah, this was amazing. Okay. We got to wrap up now, but I just love it. Thank you so much for all the hard work that you have put into bringing um, the resources and the data and the information together and sharing it with us today. 
I really hope it inspires people to be more purposeful when they come to the negotiation table and to understand that um, when we advocate for ourselves, we're advocating for our profession. And that's what we want. Absolutely. Thank you, Leanne. And um, I invite anybody to reach out to me um, or even to, you know, with any questions about negotiation. Um, I'm, you know, always here to uh, collaborate and educate. You can find me on Instagram um, at Today I Learned and Met SLP um, or on my website, which is linked in my bio. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Leanne. I mean, wow, wasn't that great? Ah, so, so good. I hope none of that comes back to haunt me, actually, now that I reflect upon it. (laughs) Just kidding. I think it was all super useful, really helpful, and I hope that you are able to take the information and hopefully benefit from it and uh, grow. So that's the whole point of this podcast is to give you ideas and tools um, that are meant to benefit you and benefit the patients that we work with and work for. So big, big thanks to Sarah for just being amazing, for being herself and uh, coming on the podcast and sharing all those great tools. Um, Go ahead and check out those show notes, all those resources and um, references that Sarah used are posted there so you can learn more about the information that we talked about. Um, Also, I'd be delighted if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps other SLPs find the podcast and nourish and flourish right alongside of us. Big thanks to the team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for editing and doing some behind-the-scenes work to help facilitate this podcast. Really appreciate it. And a big, big thanks to the listeners. Uh, This podcast would be nothing without you. I am so grateful that you find value here. It's my goal to um, lift up this field by giving you resources that you can take and use in your everyday career. So if there's something you'd like to hear more of, and a topic you want to know about or a speaker that you want to hear from, reach out on my website, speechuncensored.com, and let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, nourish and flourish. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 